Good morning. It is good to be back. I want to thank you for your kindness and allowing me and my family to go on vacation. We had a blast. It was a great time of family fellowship. Uh, there are, were tons of smiles, hugs, and catching fish. Lots of it. Uh, I'm very thankful that there are many well-equipped teachers in our church. We are truly our blessed church, aren't we? Many times it's hard to find one faithful expositor in a church in our culture, in our day, and yet we have several, and we are very, very, very blessed. Graciously given faithful expositors. We just need to remember to whom much is given, much is required. We need to take what we are given and use it for God's glory, correct? Today we continue our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is the Lord's authoritative word on how His disciples should live in a world in light of His coming kingdom. The kingdom had not yet officially started. The king ha came to announce His coming kingdom. And even after His death, burial, and resurrection, the kingdom was not yet established. He ascended to heaven and He will return one day and establish His kingdom on earth. In the meantime, the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect application for both the ones that were his disciples and us who are his disciples. This is how we should live in light of the kingdom to come. This is how believers live in a fallen world. It's important to note the king's way is totally opposite of the religious systems of the world. He gives a countercultural message. His Righteousness is not about creation's approval. Rather, it's about the creator's approval. This is opposite of the way the world thinks. The world thinks that all that matters is what we think. Whereas God's word says all that matters is what he thinks. And that's how we're supposed to live. The disciples are called to reveal their new relationship with God as his children. He established the new covenant and inaugurated the new covenant. And so therefore, new followers of Christ are children of God. And we follow God as our Abba, Father. So as we saw, Jesus started this uh, Sermon on the Mount with several statements that explained who are the favored of God. They're called the Beatitudes. They're found in chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. We could summarize this section with the favor of God with fullness of joy is on those who are distinct from the world because their future is bright with God. The favor of God with fullness of joy are on those who are opposite from the world because their future is bright with God. Then Jesus gives a statement on the believer's mission while in this dark world. You see that in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5. The mission from God for his followers is to be salt and light in the world. Again, we're supposed to be opposite, different, distinct, holy, set-apart people. And Jesus began to give a correct exposition of the law. He also corrects the wrong oral traditions that had corrupted the accurate view of the law through his exposition of the law in verses 17 to 48. His exposition of the law. In this section, Jesus exhorted his followers to accomplish the heart of God's law. 
not the superficial wrong interpretations of the religious elites. In other words, it's about what's going on inside more than what it looks like on the outside. It's what we're thinking on. It's what we're meditating on. Jesus' exposition of the law flips the world's thinking on its head and its practices upside down. He talks about things like a sin-slaying commitment to our murderous hearts. That in verses 21 to 26 that we should be radical in putting to death sin in our lives. A radical commitment to purity in verses 27 to 30. A sacrificial commitment to our spouse in verses 31 to 32. An absolute commitment to our integrity in verses 33 to 37. And then in verse 38 to 42, a humble commitment to our offenders. Those who offend us, we're supposed to be humble towards them. And finally, a God-like commitment to our enemies in verses 43 to 47. Notice in verse 44, we talked about this last time. But as I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Again, he's not talking about here about how we become sons of God. It's in order for us to demonstrate that we are children of God, we demonstrate it by loving our enemies. Because the world doesn't do this, right? The world has nothing to do with its enemies. As a matter of fact, what the world does is slanders its enemies. It does everything it can to slay its enemies. But we're supposed to be like our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father who sent His Son into the world to die for His enemies. Who are His enemies? We were. But God sent Jesus into the world to die for us. And this is the kind of love we're supposed to demonstrate. We're supposed to look just like our Heavenly Father. And it assumes something in this verse. It assumes that we are different. <laughs> that followers of Jesus, real disciples, are different. We have a new father, and therefore a new heart, and a new desire, and a desire to honor our father and look like him. We stopped last time before finishing this section where Jesus gave his exposition of the law, and you've had a couple of weeks to think on this verse. I don't know how, you, how you've done. Look at verse 48. It's a summary statement of his exposition of the law, and it's found in that last verse, verse 48. He says this statement, therefore, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If there was one verse in all the Bible that we probably would all say, what? How in the world am I to do this? It's one that we must understand and apply. Notice it starts with the word, therefore. Therefore is there for a reason. In light of Jesus' correct explanation of the law, you are to be perfect. In light of everything I've talked to you about of the law and how you're supposed to look like it, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus just explained that God's mark is love for your enemy, mercy to those who offend you, purity at all costs, 
integrity, and holiness no matter what. This is the standard. And then he says, hit that mark perfectly. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The word perfect here could be translated attain the end or aim. Attain the end or aim or hit the mark of what you were designed for. Perfect is anything that has attained that for which it was designed for. Hit what you are designed for. Hit the mark that God has called you to hit. Jesus is calling his disciples to attain the end for which God made them. Become like your Father in heaven. I don't know about you guys, but as I speak these truths and as I even say them out loud, I think to myself, that's impossible. That's what God is calling his disciples. This is what the Lord is telling his disciples to do. Be perfect. Hit the mark that you were designed for. This is similar to those verses like, be holy for I am holy. Y'all know these verses, right? They're there. They're in the Bible. This command is arguably the hardest command in all the Bible. Be exactly what God designed you to be as his child. Righteous, holy, perfect, just like your heavenly father. Friends, the weight of this verse should have humble every one of us in this room. Hit the mark means we are to continuously, all the time, pursue righteousness. We are to love even the worst of our neighbors. We are to radically be committed to our purity. We are to wholeheartedly be devoted to our spouses. Whether we have them yet or not. You should be even, if you're single, you're radically committed to if God gives you a spouse. Purity, holiness. We are absolutely committed to speaking the truth. We're even committed to love our most hardened enemies. This is the summary. Hit that mark. Beloved, this is what God saves us for. A disciple of Christ is someone God has adopted into his family. He has rebirthed them. He has transformed their heart and their minds. He has redeemed them from bondage to sin. And now he is expecting us to imitate our heavenly father. Paul's parallel verse to this is in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. I'll read it to you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitate God. What section is this in in Ephesians chapter 5? Is it in the doctrine section or the application section? It's in the application section. It's in the what we should do in light of the doctrine section. This is in the sanctification section of Ephesians chapter 5. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And Jesus primarily was speaking in Matthew chapter 4 or 5, 6, and 7 to who? His followers, his disciples. 
These are sanctification commands, beloved. These are scary things. Now, most of the time when this is used, this verse is used, it's often used for justification. That is to show you you can't do it. You fail. You can't hit the mark. But actually, Jesus is calling his disciples to a high standard. He's calling them to pursue righteousness with all that they have. We just can't fully grasp how deep a walk with God this calling is. When Jesus says, hit the mark for which you are called, as your heavenly Father hits the mark, he's saying, be like your heavenly Father. There's some profound truths revealed in this verse. First, the disciples are children of God, as I mentioned. Your heavenly Father should scream off the page. Your heavenly father as your heavenly father. This implies that the disciples were not just people. They were his personal children. His children. We had a, 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 one of the greatest things about vacation for us is it's the time for me to just spend more time with my kids. It's daddy time. It's those moments where the kids just get to curl up in my lap a lot more. I got more hugs in the last two weeks than I've gotten in the last two years. Excellent stuff. It's those moments when I know and we have this intimate relationships where they can ask me all the questions they want to ask. They can, I will bait their hooks and take their fish off and get stuck by a million fish because I love them and I just want to spend time with them. It's that time when our relationship is developed. This relationship with God, this kind of relationship with God is in view as he calls them to perfection. To hit the mark that you were designed for. It must include a right understanding of your relationship with God. It must have awareness that God is your father. And that you are loved by him and that you know him and that he is your heavenly father. And as you understand that, then to be called to that mark is to do something that you want to do. Do you understand? It's not something that we, oh no, i got to strive for righteousness. Bummer. It's not a sacrifice for me to strive to, for righteousness. It's not a sacrifice for me to strive for holiness. You know why? Because I have a heavenly father that loves me. That I'm rightly related with him, so I want to pursue him. And this is important for you to know, beloved. If you're trying to pursue righteousness with not, without a right relationship with God, it's impossible. You will do it with wrong motives, I promise you. He will address these motives in chapter 6. If you're striving for righteousness for the purpose of pleasing anybody in this room or anybody in this world, you're going to miss the mark. You will never hit the mark. But as you strive for this relationship or for this righteousness in light of your relationship with Christ, in light of your right relationship with Abba Father, then he will empower you and he will be your delight and he will be your joy. And he will be why you pursue righteousness. I want my heavenly father to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you? 
all genuine believers, we know this truth. We want to please him, don't we? And that is a tremendous motivation in our souls, isn't it? It calls us to righteousness and holiness and purity. Notice second, both the intimacy and transcendent nature of God is revealed in this title. Your heavenly father. God is the believer's father. But he's also the heavenly father. As Mark mentioned today in his prayer in this morning in Sunday school. God is so much better a father than even the fathers that we have. Or one of the guys that was praying. So much better than our father in this world. I blow it as a father. Even right now, I'm struggling because my two guys on the front row are talking and chatting, and I'm trying to focus on preaching, and they're playing. I struggle. I'm not an omniscient, all-knowing father. But I have an omniscient, holy, perfect father who is gracious and kind to us and has a way of working in our lives And showing great grace and great mercy and great hope, right? What a father. He's both transcendent that he's so far above us and so much more holy than us. And so much more righteous and so perfect. And yet he's also my father. Which is an astounding concept. To think that the creator of all the worlds. You know, one of the things about our vacation that was so amazing is going out... Uh, in the night and looking at all the stars and thinking all of those are suns and God made it all and he spoke it all into existence and he said let there be stars as a side note and yet he's also my father he's the one I can curl up in his lap (laughs) and I can call him Abba, Daddy Papa What a God, transcendent above all things, but yet intimately acquainted with each and every one of his children. That makes me want to pursue righteousness, doesn't it? You? Aren't you motivated to go out and pursue holiness? Doesn't it make you want to kill sin? It does me. I'm ready. This is the relationship This is the righteousness that we pursue. We pursue it because we have a heavenly father. When we say to watch me to our children, we always have to put that disclaimer, don't we? As parents, y'all struggle like me? Watch me. Do what I say to do. Watch what I do. But I always have to put the disclaimer this, as long as I'm following God. As long as I'm obeying God, you follow me. But our Heavenly Father never has to put a disclaimer. Because He's heavenly. He's not worldly. He's set apart. He's distinct. He's perfect. And He says, imitate me. As beloved children. Be like me. Third, by Jesus revealing the disciples' relationship with God as their father, he was showing his own divine authority. Because, see, he was bringing in thoughts and truths that was foreign to the disciples. The disciples might have thought that God was somewhat of a father over the nation of Israel, but 
on an intimate level for each disciple that their God was Father was shocking. But he was speaking with an authority that only God himself could say. Because he was revealing truth that was, wow, God. It showed that he had that kind of relationship. He was intimately involved in the Trinity. He was God in the flesh. To even speak these truths showed that he was the one. These are revelations that only the God-man could make. That's why at the end of the sermon, you see that the, the people that were around, the crowds were around, they, they said, he's speaking as, as if one who has authority. Who has authority. He is the God-man speaking and giving a glimpse of what a relationship with God is all about. And fourth, implied by this command to be perfect as your heavenly father. Hit the mark as your heavenly father hit the mark. Divine enablement for God's own children. Remember, beloved. Y'all all know the passage. Romans chapter 3. None do good. None are righteous. Correct? then what in the world would he be telling his disciples to be righteous for? The answer is really clear. None do good and none are righteous if they are not children of God. But once God transforms a heart and brings this into his family, he gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new desire, and the Spirit of God literally dwells within his people and empowers them and we cry out, Abba, Father. None seeks after God is the same section in Romans chapter 3. None seeks after God. But if we cry out, Abba, Father, then that implies that there's what? A change in our souls. We now have a divine focus. That is, God has given us a heart, a new heart that loves him and wants to serve him and wants to obey him. And a divine enablement by God. God does not give commands that he doesn't also empower us to do. Please don't say, I can't slay this sin. Unless you say it this way, I by myself can't slay this sin. But by the grace of God that works within me, I can by God's grace. It is God's power in his children that helps us to slay sin. Mark mentioned it again in Sunday school. By the Spirit, we put the death, the deeds of the body. It is the Spirit of God that's working in us. A divine enablement of God's children is obviously implied by this command. God doesn't give commands for us only to fail. We are able to accomplish what he designed us to be in Christ. Now, this is not all the time because we are in these unredeemed bodies of flesh. We understand that. But by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, we are able to imitate our Heavenly Father. We are able to love our enemies as he does. We are able to stay committed to our spouses as he is to his church. We are able to pursue purity. We are able to put to death sin by the spirit that enables us. So what do verses like this do to your soul? When you hear it, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father 
is perfect. What happens to us? What's going on in your mind right now? It should produce several things in our hearts. First, it should produce a conviction for sin that we have done. Everybody in the room should have some conviction at this moment. How many of you were perfect last week? Please don't raise your hand. If so, there's a problem, isn't there? None of us were perfect. There should be this conviction within our soul that we have not hit the mark. Second, there should be a reminder in our hearts, by the Spirit's work in our hearts, that we need a Savior. We need somebody to hit the target for us. So ultimately, it should drive us back to the gospel, shouldn't it? It should remind us, because none of us really hit the mark perfectly. None of us. And we all need a Savior, don't we? And the good news is is that Jesus came into the world and did fulfill all the law. He obeyed it perfectly. And it is his righteousness, ultimately, that that is all that matters. Correct? I'm going to heaven. You're going to heaven if you're a born-again believer only because of Christ's righteousness. You say, why is that important? Well, because I preach that to my soul all the time. How about you? I need that. I need that reminder. Third, there should be a desire to confess our sins to our Father and a desire to be renewed in our pursuit of righteousness. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me, Lord, to pursue you and know you and enjoy you and and honor you, Abba, Father. Fourth, there should be a confident expectation that our Heavenly Father loves us and wants to accomplish this pursuit of holiness. God wants to work in us, and we should go back to him in faith, trusting that he will work in us. These verses all should drive us through that cycle over and over and over and over. How often do we preach the gospel and repent? All the time. We're always doing it. We're always turning back to him. And fifth, there should be a renewed resolve to pursue righteousness of our Father by His empowering grace. We should be steadfast, ready to go, going to do it, going to do whatever radical steps that you require. If this means gouging out the eye, cutting off the hand, we'll do it. Not literally. But we'll do whatever it takes to pursue holiness. Why? Because we know that his righteousness is our credited to our account. And he's our father and we are restored to him. And sixth, there should be action. This is the step that's often not taken and often not pursued. Taking steps to pursue righteousness by God's divine help. Doing whatever it takes. So let's clarify something here. This is first and foremost a verse on sanctification. How the disciples should hit the mark. It's a verse that says God's own should seek to be who they are in Christ. I think this was the primary purpose that Jesus had in mind when he was speaking to his disciples. But there were unbelievers in the crowd listening also. So at the same time, it can be a verse that brings an unbeliever to repentance. It can also be a verse that causes a believer 
to repent. <laughs> because when we fail, we run back to Christ. And for the unbeliever that is in the crowd and they hear, you must be perfect as your heavenly father, there should be things going on in your soul too. And that is my prayer. Be perfect as your heavenly father. These questions kind of come to mind for the unbeliever in the crowd. What about all my sins? What about all my sins? I know I haven't been perfect. I know I haven't been holy all the time. Is there an unbeliever in the room? Is there somebody here that's saying, hey, what about all my sin? Is God even my father? Do I even know him as my father? Is being righteous even possible for me? I enjoy my sin way too much. If you're not saved, I've got good news for you. There's hope in Christ. You have sinned countless times against God your entire life. You have lied countless times. You have lusted countless times. You have been unfaithful to your spouse or your future spouse countless times. You have sought revenge for those who have hurt you countless times. You have not loved like God. You love only those who love you. But God. Good news. Hey, folks, you need to know this gospel presentation if you're already a believer and you're saying, should I know this? Yes. Every single one of us should be able to proclaim this to people. Give them hope. You need a Savior. And God has provided one. A perfect Savior. A righteous Savior. I want to say it again. You must be perfect to go to heaven. As Paul states, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Not some ungodliness, not a little bit of unrighteousness, but all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God hates sin. And everybody in the room agrees with this, correct? He hates sin. God requires sin to be judged, doesn't he? He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. His standard is perfect holiness. So God's standard is perfect holiness. Who in here hits that mark perfectly? How many of you in here are perfect? Trick question. All believers in the room, raise your hand. Why? Why? Because Christ Jesus is our Savior. Christ Jesus came into the world to die to pay for sinners. He's the perfect one. He fulfilled all the law and then died on a cross to pay for my sin. And so all my sin, past, present, and future, is paid for at the cross by Christ. And all of his righteousness, all those right acts are mine. By grace, through faith, in him. And so by the grace of God, through faith in Christ alone, I am declared right with God. And as the Father sees me, he sees the Son, the one who paid for my sin. You in this room that think, I've got to somehow clean myself up, you will never do it. 
You need a savior. His name is Jesus. He's the Nazarene who came in the world to die for you. Trust him, not yourself. Isn't that good news? What a savior. All of us who have repented, turned from our sins and embraced God, his son, through faith, in the person and work of Jesus, are declared righteous. We are the righteous by declaration by God, by trusting in him. We are perfect through Jesus' death for us. We are perfect because Jesus' fulfillment of the law. And now as children of God, we pursue being who we are in Christ. We pursue looking like what we've been declared. Have you repented and believed in Jesus? If you're here and you haven't, turn to him today. He's your hope. Have you turned from your self-rule to submit to the lordship of Jesus and reign in your life? Everyone who has turned to God from the world and its sin is declared right with God. And you are now children of God. And we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. As believers, when we sin, we don't cover it. We run to our Father. We cry out, Abba, Father, and ask for forgiveness and restoration. We abide in Him and He in us. And true disciples of Jesus pursue righteousness by God's overwhelming power in our lives and His grace that's abundant in our lives. We love Him and His Word and we seek to obey Him and make Him known to the world. We are little lights in this world pointing others to Him saying, Jesus is what we're all about. That's who we are. And that's why I'm back up in this pulpit screaming at you again. Jesus is good. He's the lover of my soul. He's the one that died in my place. He's all I have. He's better than 90 weeks of vacation. He's better than catching the largest fish in the world. He's better than anything that this world has to offer. Jesus is good. And true disciples of Jesus pursue this righteousness by God's power. This is who we are. We're born again children of God. We seek to be righteous for his glory and his honor, not for ours. Next, Jesus starts a new section. So I know this breaks all the molds for all the sermon delivery and everything about it. Just go into the next verse, folks. Turn there. Chapter 6, verse 1. In this section, he begins to unfold Jesus' correction of the self-righteous system. We're not going to get far. We're only going to get through one verse. We're going to introduce the concept, but I want you to understand it because it's very important. Because, see, there's going to be two people in this room. Two types of people, very basically, in this room. There's one type that's going to go out of this room pursuing righteousness for the glory of God. And then there's another group. Hopefully it's a very small group. That's going to go out of this room pursuing righteousness for the approval of others. Maybe somebody in this room, maybe one of you is thinking i got to clean myself up. I need to be righteous because these people around here, they think that I'm not a believer. 
So what I need to do is clean myself up so I look righteous. And so you're going to go out and try to pursue righteousness for others' approval. I want to warn you, beloved, there's no hope in that. There's no goodness in that. There's no glory in that. The reward you get from people saying, man, you look good, is all you're going to get. And that's not going to mean anything in a thousand years from now. Jesus begins to correct this self-righteous system, the religious system. See, the day and age Jesus and his disciples lived in is much like ours. People love to talk about what's right and wrong. Everybody has an opinion of what's right and what's wrong. But most of the time, it's really all about external morality. So today, I, 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 we begin to unfold this next major section where Jesus confronts this. And he confronts the idea that looking good on the outside for people's approval is really just a false religion. And it's heretical. Notice the summary statement that it starts with in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Then, what Jesus does is he unfolds three warning examples of what these examples look like. In verses 2 to 4, he talks about giving. In 5 to 15, he talks about praying. And then in 16 to 18, he talks about fasting. All of them are illustrations of verse 1. All of them are set to give an understanding that outward external self-righteous religion for the purpose of people's approval is absolutely useless to God and must be avoided at all costs. For the disciple, there is a warning. I want to just cover this opening statement and dig in a little bit. And I want you to think on it this next week. These words directly confronted the religious system of Jesus' day. The Pharisees and the scribes had established a religious system that elevated self-righteous human achievement. It was a religion based completely upon human approval. I can't stress this enough. Our community is very similar to this thinking. Our world is. Morality is based on a public opinion poll in our culture. If someone approves of what you are doing, you're fine. But if somebody condemns your behavior, you better avoid it or face public shame and disgrace. So it's set up this way. But there's a huge problem with all of this. It often never gets to the heart of the sin. It's all about the moral police, but it fails to address the motives of the heart. It also produces a society that's morality is subjective. It's all subjective. It's really more about the society's popular opinion rather than genuine truth. Isn't this our culture? This is our society. This is how you can have homosexuality and abortion as perfectly acceptable and killing a particular animal as an abomination worthy of death. Why? Because it's all about externals. It's all about outward. It's all about public opinion. 
Do you know that abortion is acceptable because it's acceptable by the masses? It's just like racism was a acceptable during the time. Why? Because it was publicly acceptable. But we weren't dealing with the heart. We weren't dealing with the heart. And you deal with the heart with the gospel. When you know Christ. When you know who he is. And when you have these inner relationships with father. A father who rebukes and corrects and directs. The same kind of thinking was dominant in Jesus' day. The law had been turned upside down on its head. It had become a way of gaining people's approval instead of a way to live to honor God and show one's appreciation for his deliverance of them and his setting, part of the, setting them apart as a nation. People did religion to gain people's approval instead of serving God out of gratitude and worship to God. Jesus warned his disciples to avoid doing good works for other humans' approval. That's what he's saying in this verse. He warned them because it's commonplace and it's still a propensity in disciples' hearts. I want you to listen, beloved. Listen very, very, very carefully. Who's the primary audience that he's talking to? Disciples. Followers. So what does that imply if he says, beware of doing your righteousness that others will approve? It implies disciples can do it too. This doesn't just go away. We're all prone to this. Jesus warned them. Avoid doing good works for human approval. He warned them because it's a propensity in the disciples' hearts. Friends, we need this so much. Every one of us, even those who are in Christ, will be tempted in this area often. We're tempted when we're parenting. We're tempted when we're talking to a neighbor. We're tempted at work. We're tempted all the time, aren't we? Think about this. Do you do your work for your boss's approval or for God's approval? Do you do kind things to your neighbor? Do you bring them cookies so that they will like you? Or do you give them cookies because Christ loves you? Is it gratitude or is it people-pleasing? How often do we not say it out loud, but we think it in our hearts. Look at me. I'm a good person. This, beloved, is an abominable sin. Why is it so heinous? Well, because it seeks to rob God of his glory. When a genuine disciple seeks to do righteousness to be seen by others, we say an audience of the creation is more important than the audience of the creator. Second, it ignores whose opinion really matters. Whose opinion really matters in all this? 
it's not what you think, to be perfectly honest. To give me a standing ovation at the end would be an absolute horrific thing. Don't ever think about doing something like that. Because the audience of God is the only one that matters. And he's sitting right there, and that's the only one I'm worried about. He's, he's in the open seat here. No, he's everywhere. You get the gist. In my mind, I'm not worried what you think. And when I worry about what you think, guess what I do? I blow it. I don't preach to the choir. I try not to. And when I do, I'm sinning. The audience is God. The only one that matters. Friends, when we constantly, when we are constantly concerned with what other people think of us, we are really more concerned with human approval than God's pleasure. Third, it often lowers the bar of righteousness. To what is seen by humans, not by what is seen by God. This is really true, isn't it? And this means we sin a lot more. When the audience is man instead of God, we sin a ton more. You know why? Because we're more fake. We're good at covering. How many of you are good actors? Every single one of you. Every single one of you, you clean up nice on Sundays. Love you. But I know your heart. You know how I know your heart? Because I've got one. I've got the same one. When we do this, we walk around thinking we're something when we're really nothing. Oh, friends, a religion based on man's approval will ultimately end up being used, a useless fake morality. The human nature is bent on allowing sinful behavior. It constantly seeks to justify itself in every sin it can. It wants to get away with sin. Did you know that your nature, your human nature, wants to get away with sin? That's what it wants. So religion based on human approval will ultimately find a way of getting together with the multitude than to approve of what? What gets away with sin. That's why public opinion polls on what is right and wrong should never be listened to. Ever. You know why? Because everybody's totally depraved. The vast majority of the world's run by who? Satan. What in the world do we want to know what people's opinions are on what's morality? Most likely it's corrupted, isn't it? Scary thing is, is that I know that I fight the same thing now, even in Christ. And you do too. A religion based on human approval will ultimately find a multitude of loopholes for which sin can be perpetrated. Before you know it, everybody's sinning. And looking at each other and saying, you're good. Jesus goes right to the heart of the disciples. Beware of who you do good things for. 
If you practice religion for human's approval, there's no reward for you in heaven. God's reward comes for the humble servants under the Spirit's control. Disciples of Jesus do things for people's praise, not for people's praise, but for the glory of God. This is why Roman Catholicism, Islam, and all other fake religions are so hideous. They are based on human approval, not God's true righteous standard. This thinking can slide every one of us into, or we can all slide into this thinking, so beware. You can come to church for approval. You can serve in church for human approval. You can compliment people for their approval. You can even give for human approval. You can pray for human approval. You can fast for human approval. I want to make something very clear, though. This doesn't mean stop praying stop giving, and stop going to church, or stop serving. This is where we kind of pendulum and we blow it, right? That means, okay, I'm just going to give up, because I might do it for the wrong reasons. How about this? Do it for the right reasons. (laughs) Honor God, that's what Jesus says. I confess, can you imagine thinking on this message for three weeks? That's where I've been for three weeks. It has been. I am so thankful to be back so I can move on. This is crushing, isn't it? How many of you, how many of you, anybody in the room feeling any conviction at all, too? I got good news for you. We serve a risen Savior who did nothing for people's approval but always did what God wanted him to do. And even to the last second when he had saw that he had done all that the Father had given him to do and he cried out, it is finished. We have a Savior. That fulfilled the law. I'm so thankful for this, aren't you? Oh, beloved, listen to me. Let's go serve this risen Savior. Let's go honor this Abba Father that we have. Let's go do things for his glory and his honor, not our own glory and our own honor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. None of us get out of this room without being slayed by your word. All of us recognize there are mixed motives in our hearts and realize that often we do things out of sinful intentions. Please, Father, please forgive us. We are here begging for your mercy again. Recognizing that our righteousness ultimately only comes from Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who died in our place and rose from the dead. Thank you, Father, for Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray that today that we will bring glory to him and glory to you through the power of the Spirit 
We pray this in Jesus' name.